One more thing before we get into God's word is tonight's a special night. We have a special guest with us, and I'm so excited to be able to introduce him. Our church uh, here at Redemption Gateway, we're focused when it comes to international work. Uh, We do some in Juarez, Mexico, and then we uh, have a significant investment in Turkey. And uh, Turkey is a really interesting place because in some ways it's like the birthplace of Christianity, right? After Jerusalem, so much of the New Testament is actually written to churches that were in what's now modern-day Turkey, And yet, uh, despite that history, uh, Turkey now has just very, very little Christian witness. There's 80 plus million people in Turkey and about five to 8,000 Christians. So just to put that in perspective, about the same number of Christians and people gathered across all redemption congregations today as gathered for church in all of Turkey. So seriously unreached, serious need for the gospel, And uh, so we've been looking over the years for different folks to partner with. Well, we came in contact with uh, a guy named Bill Gay, who's here with us tonight. And uh, we met him a few years ago, and I've been to Turkey a couple times to visit him. I've hung out with uh, his wife, Sylvia, and their three kids. Um, His uh, oldest guy, who's like 12 years old, is an unbelievable, you know, does all these card tricks. I said, where'd you learn all these? He said, well, I have this friend named YouTube. (laughs) And... uh, you know, and they're just a great, great family. And, and he's a really interesting guy. He's, he's Turkish by ethnicity. His parents were both from Turkey, but he was born and raised in Germany. And so he's always been in this kind of cross-cultural dynamic where his native language is, is Turkish, but he's fluent in German and he's fluent in English. And he's uh, kind of tried to figure out where does he fit. And, and the Lord's taken him on some interesting journeys. After, uh, after college, he headed to grad school. In grad school, he got a PhD in physics. Yeah, I could tell you some really cool stories about some of the things he discovered and actually uh, things that are on weather satellites that only are there because of his work in that field. So it's kind of interesting. He's also a musician, uh, plays, uh, you know, plays really high-level electric and classical guitar and just is excellent in that way. So it's kind of this freakish thing. And then the Lord called him to plant a church in Istanbul. So to leave Germany and to go to Istanbul. And the neighborhood he's in in Istanbul is really interesting. One of our friends described it as... Uh, it feels like if Seattle and New York City had a Muslim baby, that would be this neighborhood. So it's, there's like some elements of real traditional Islam, but in his neighborhood especially, there's a lot of young people who are deconstructing their Islam, who are moving in a more progressive, more secular direction. And so it's into that environment that he's planting the gospel, preaching the truth of the scripture. And uh, so it's, it's just awesome. As I've gotten to know him, we have a monthly call um, where he asks me questions, which I think is hilarious because I've never planted a church in this symbol, so I don't know anything about that. Um, but I try to encourage him and just support him. And then he's here tonight, and I'm so excited for us to have the chance to learn from him. I think there are some things that you can learn when you listen to people who don't share all of your existing experiences. And so I think we're going to be encouraged and blessed. And so would you give a big Redemption Gateway welcome to my friend, Bill Gay, Larry. Thank you so much. Dude, I love that you're here. This yes. is, it's been so fun hanging out with you. I, uh, Friday, we went to a football game and then Santan Flat. I was like, how American is that? So... <laughs> It was really a great time. Great. Um, he's going to teach tonight from uh, Matthew chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 12. If you're able to, let's stand together. We're going to read tonight. It's a short uh, little section, verses 46 through 50. Jesus says some surprising things here. 
it'll be fun for Bill Gates to unpack for us tonight. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. And as I read, remember, we're reading God's word. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to being here. And I bring greetings from Istanbul, from uh, your partner church. And they're excited uh, to uh, hear how you guys are doing. And one of the things that I left behind when we had to move, when we moved from Germany to Turkey, was uh, my environment of colleagues and friends uh, in the university realm, but also in high school realm. And one of my German friends... We got really close, we have a lot of common interests, he plays guitar, he's interested in music, we listen to the same stuff, and he's a, he's a great teacher. Uh, and, he, you know, as we got to know each other, we learned a little bit about each other's stories, and it was interesting because I was Turkish, but then I was not Muslim, I was Christian, and, you know, this was a little bit, you know, weird for him, obviously, for many others too. And I learned that, you know, he grew up Catholic, and uh, in his family, uh, he always was under tremendous pressure by his very authoritarian father, and they basically um, had him do all the religious things that you have to do. So they were, he was forced to go to Mass and to, to like the church service, and there was a lot, lot of other things that he did. And what happened was he rebelled and just turned away from the faith, became atheistic, um, and that's a very typical story in Germany and may maybe in many Western parts of the world. And as we became friends and as I shared to him what I believe and he was thinking about stuff um, and I kind of had ways to expose him to the church, he started playing bagpipe and when I was serving in worship, we had a whole, whole worship service where we arranged all the songs for bagpipe, which the guys in Hamburg loved. And so he started coming to church first as a, you know, as a guest doing music, and then he started hearing the sermons on the podcast, and where he's now, and I've been texting this morning with him, um, he's really interested, and he's really reading his Bible, and he's listening to the weekly sermons, but what he's not doing is he does not attend church. And when we had our conversations every year, when I'm back in Germany, I try to meet up with the people that are close, and he's one of them, and so we had this conversation, he has a lot of questions, he's considering him a believer, but he's also seeking still, trying to make sense of what the Bible teaches. And he says, you know, I really don't like these family analogies in the Bible. I really don't like that it's such an emphasis, and it's, it's really interesting, and we've been talking about that. Why is that? What might be reasons for that? And then he said, well, there's one part that I really like, one portion of Scripture, and it's where Jesus talks. It's this portion of Scripture that Luke read about the family, and that's what I want to unpack today with you guys, and it's really interesting because family obviously is very important in Turkey and in Turkish culture, and in many places in the the world, it's recognized that family is the most crucial core unit of society, and when you have healthy families, you have a healthy society, and when you don't, a society falls apart, and in many history books, you can see 
uh, cultures and ancient places where this happened. And so maybe when we're listening to this, like, verses that were read, you're a little bit like my German friend, and you might think of opportunities like Thanksgiving or the 4th of July, which I've heard are important days here, uh, when you gather with your family, and it's not just your immediate family, but your, like, extended family, and then you have people that are really difficult to get along with, and you're just paired together in one room, and you can't get away. And maybe there's, you know, maybe in the, in the you know, when you're preparing to go somewhere, it's like, oh, I wish I just could not go to this family reunion. I was, I was just going to be walking on eggshells, and there's just this one person that I just can't relate to, and we have very different opinions on life. And, and so maybe you have this experience, and you feel relief when you come to this text, because you feel, wow, Jesus is putting some healthy boundaries on family. <laughs> Praise God. I don't, have to, I don't have to, like, endure all this the whole time, and you feel relieved. But tonight I want to like really look what Jesus is actually teaching here. And, and before we can really understand that, I think we have to talk a little bit about our cultural blinders. Every culture has their own um, set of beliefs that we're not even talking about because they're so, so imminent. And we grow up with them, we don't talk about them, but everything that we do, everything that we um, think, basically are influenced by these cultural blindness. And in Turkey... And in many traditional cultures, I think the cultural blindness, the narratives of society are that the most important thing in life is your family. And everything else serves the purpose of family. You know, if you, if you get a job, if you get a career, if you, if you learn new skills, the ultimate goal is always your family. And so when, when Simon, my co-pastor, and we, we moved to Turkey and we were getting to know people and we we're getting engaged in, in the neighborhood and he got to know people and we had like, we prayed for them, and we talked about them, and he said, man, I got this, I met, I met this really interesting guy, and he's an engineer, we went to play pool billiard and stuff, and talked the whole night, and you know, they, it's really interesting, he talked to me about his sister, and his little sister, and then he's sending her money every month, and I was like, and you know, in Germany, that's totally crazy, why would you do that? Um, that's the responsibility of our parents, Right? And, and, and Sam was like, I asked him, you know, does your, do your parents, like, want you to do that? Or do they force you to do it? And there's a, no, 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 they don't even know about this, you know. It's just I want to I help her because, you know, she's still in university and she has to get, get to make ends meet. So everything is really serving the family and then the society. So that's traditional cultures. Um, in secular cultures, the cultural blindness circle around Freedom and identity, you know, freedom goes something like this. Nobody has the right to tell me how to live my life, and you better not try. And identity goes something like this. I need to be true to myself, express my deepest desires and dreams no matter what others say. And just a couple of minutes ago, we sang the song. It said, I lay all my desires and dreams down. Really? <laughs> Seriously? How much? So... These cultural narratives are important when we come to this text because basically they influence how we read this. They're like a pair of glasses that are invisible. And it's really something you can't see and that's what makes them so dangerous because they creep through the church doors and they influence your faith, they influence your life. Uh, maybe one example, when the pandemic started, um, I was in good touch with my friends in Germany and you know, then this vaccine came along, and in Germany, all my friends were just going so crazy. They were like, 
it can't be that they're forcing us to get this and this is my personal decision and nobody has to tell me to take it or not take it. And they were, they were going nuts, they were rebelling and they were basically doing all these crazy stuff, COVID parties and stuff. And, and while they were doing that, the group of people in society that was most terrified, most depressed was the older people because they were scared that they would get sick and die, basically. And at the same time in Turkey, I saw the exact opposite thing. The people group that was most scared, that was most depressed, that suffered the most during the pandemic was the young people, 15 to 25 to 30, because they were so scared that they would get sick and then would give it over to their parents or their grandparents whom they were living with. And so what happened was the young people just, they disappeared from the streets. You didn't see any young people because they were like, if, if my parents get sick because of me and they die, I could never forgive myself. And the first people in line when there was vaccines were the young people because they was like, oh, praise God, you know, <laughs> that's a solution, that's a way out. So you see how the cultural blinders influence your daily decisions that you may think they don't have anything to do with your face, but, but they have. And so... It might be that your cultural blinders, that the narratives that we buy into, the limit, the degree to which we can relate to what Jesus is telling us here. It might be that it enables us or not enables us to see what, what is taught. And so when a text like this, when, when my German friend reads it, he's like, oh, this is so great. It's putting limits to family and it's like, it's, this, it's healthy. And when my friends in the East read it, they're, first they're shocked because it's really offensive, but then... They say, wow, but actually Jesus is elevating family because he's using it as an analogy to a spiritual principle. So which of it is it? And actually, we, we're going to assume in a couple of minutes that it's both. So Jesus is both criticizing and elevating family. And today I want to talk about family as the heart of discipleship and the radical kind of community that Jesus is introducing this. And we'll do it like an onion. We'll kind of try to get to the core, peeling off the layers. And I talk about the immediate family then I'd like to talk about the spiritual family, and at last I want to talk about the perfect family. So are you ready to look into the text a little bit more? That's great. So in verse 46, it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So his immediate family of Jesus we know is Mary, and then he had brothers, four brothers. It was James, Joseph, Simon, and Ju Judas. And it's interesting that Jesus here in this real, very short passage, he links the immediate family to the community that he experiences with his disciples, which would later become the church. And he's using this image of family to convey a deep spiritual truth. And to understand that, we have to ask ourselves, what's so special about family in the first place? Well, there's a lot we could say, but family is usually the place where you are known and where people are really know who you are. You know, the place where you can't pretend, the place which is kind of a safe place in an ideal world. It's where you're not fake, we're not wearing any masks. In the family, people know who you are and they know who you aren't. Um, and maybe you have these experiences that I'm sure Jesus had too, that when your friends come along and your mom tells stories about when you were little, which is a little awkward, and you wish you wouldn't do that, but she still goes on doing it. And I'm thinking when, when Mary maybe had, when Mary, had the disciples over, and, and she would tell them, oh, you know how Jesus was like when he was little? And she knew Jesus as a mother, and she knew things that nobody else knew, and that, you know, she tried to understand her son. 
And you know, usually there's a deep bond, there's deep community and togetherness. There's a safe zone where you don't need to pretend where you can be yourself in the family. But there's also flip side, of course, because the people that you spend the most time with, they know all your dark sides, your brokenness. So in family, usually what we also have is there's a lot of conflicts. There's maybe the first place where we experience a lot of challenges, um, maybe a lot of quarrels. Maybe there's generational and lifestyles that clash because it's just very different opinions, different opinions on how to do life, different opinions on, on what is right and wrong. So it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting bag that on the one side, a family provides you this deep, authentic, honest community. It has the potential to develop you in a robust personality that can deal with the hardships of life and enables you to, to love other people. But if family is dysfunctional, if it's destructive, if it's hurtful, you're basically scarred and wounded. And these wounds and scars you'll carry your whole life, just like a backpack. And when we come to this text, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what was our own family like? What was your relationship in your immediate family like? What did you experience? What was the good things, the positive things, the, the memories that you cherish? What were the things that were difficult? What were the things that were painful? What might be scars and wounds that you might still carry around? Where in your immediate family did you get love and support, praise, acceptance, encouragement, and approval? Because your experience of family will shape your experience and the view of community that you have. So when we look at Jesus' family and we try to understand this text, and Jesus is saying something, some really shocking and radical things, we have to understand that he's doing what we've talked about a little bit earlier. He's basically confronting the imbalances of his culture. He's putting some healthy boundaries there because in Jesus' culture, just like today's Turkey or Japan, family was everything. In that culture, your whole identity was inherited from your family, which means your name, your profession, your social status, your opinions, your religion, your reputation, everything was basically coming from your family. You didn't have the right to choose. If your father was a carpenter, you didn't wake up and say, I'm going to be an artist. No, you became a carpenter. That's why Jesus learned the vocation of his father. So in this society, Jesus points out the overemphasis on family and says, no, there's something more important. There is something that you have to emphasize that is different. And he's correcting the, the society, he's correcting the culture. And it was outrageous for him to say what he said in this text. But at the same time, 2,000 years fast forward, today if we read the text and we dig deeper, we have to realize that Jesus corrects our culture too. Because he points out that family indeed is the analogy that he's using to describe the relationship that he wants to have with us. And so family is important. And you can't do without. And so he is both putting limits but also elevating the concept of family. And there's a quote that is mirroring a little bit what he's doing or what we have to realize when we're coming to this text today. And it's 
It goes, treat your friends as if they were family and treat your family as if they were friends. And this is pretty much the mindset that we encounter in secular cultures and in the West. And I think the core of this is going back to the narratives. It's you cannot choose your family. Somebody else chose your family for you. And that's insulting for us. That's something that's not good. That's, that's something that we struggle to accept sometimes because it's hard. Family is hard. Um, there's interesting dynamics in family. The friends on the other side, you can pick and choose how you want. You could exchange them. If, they don't, if, you, if, they, if the color of their you know, clothes don't fit your opinion, you just go to somebody else and say, you're not my friend anymore. Just, you know. So you have all the freedom to pick and choose your friends. You don't have this freedom with your family. And I think there's something that's really interesting when Jesus is pointing out that family is the analogy he's using indeed to convey spiritual principles. By the way, maybe if you have doubts if the Bible is really God's word, this is an interesting place to stop and think. My friends in Turkey, they all think that you know, the Bible has been corrupted, it's been changed over the years. And um, it's an interesting place to notice in, in like a brief passage like this that it is really logical that if the Bible is God's word, it doesn't fit in any culture. It corrects all cultures in certain areas. So it corrects the traditional culture that we find in Turkey, we found in the Roman Empire in the first century that Jesus lived in, but it also corrects the secular individualistic cultures that we find in the West today. So it makes a lot of sense if it's really God's word that it doesn't really fit in any category. And there's another interesting thing that if we want to have a personal relationship with God, the, the essence of a personal relationship with God is that the person you want to have a relationship with has to be able to disagree with your opinions. Otherwise, it would be just a robot. If, if your best friend just tells, yes, great, go on, amazing, you have it all together, it's just not, that's not a real friend. A real friend has to have the courage to sometimes just say, well, that was not that great. <laughs> Actually, you should change that. Actually, I don't agree with you. And if we want to have this kind of relationship with God, wouldn't it make total sense that there's portions of Scripture that we really disagree with that maybe make us really mad, that maybe make us want to rip out the page and just throw it away. But we need this personal relationship. I think human beings long for that. And Jesus is pointing out that every human being needs what family offers, which is basically the love, the support, the acceptance, the approval, and the praise that can be found. So where can you find that if your immediate family maybe did not have that? Let's get to my second point. It's uh, the spiritual family. Um, Jesus uses family as an image for this deep community that he's sharing with his disciples. And it's interesting, when you read verse 50, and it says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. He's really connecting the spiritual family with the immediate family. And there is an interesting causality in this, that if you take the, the teachings of Scripture that you can find in other places, you, you might unpack that a little bit more. So if I can phrase what, what verse 50 says a little bit differently, it might sound something like this. It might be, you can't do the will of the Father without being part of this deep community, which is the church. Or to phrase it again a little bit differently, you could say, to the degree that you are part of the family of God, you can partake in Jesus Christ and what he has to offer, his fullness and his presence. 
And basically, when you think about this, this is not just about family. It's about discipleship. It's about your walk of life. It's about growing and maturing and, and learning and becoming a better human being. And Paul has, has written some amazing stuff about what the church actually is. He has unpacked all the mysteries of what the church is in Ephesians. And I just want to like, go to one place at the end of the first chapter, uh, verses 22 and verses 23, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. And pa- Paul is pointing out that um, God has put all things under Christ's feet. And he has made Christ the ruler of all the universe, and he has dominion over everything. And then he goes on and says, by the way, Jesus is the head of the church. And then the church is his body in which Christ lives with all his fullness. And this is really interesting. If, if you are a little bit like me and you have times of maybe spiritual dryness and, and you, you come to realize that and you say, well, I think I need to draw closer to God. I need to, you know, I need to kind of spiritually feed myself. And what that usually translates, what that means is, I think I need to go into my room, close the door, put on some music, get my Bible out, read and pray on my own. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is saying is not that. It's the exact opposite of that. It's if you want to have more of Christ's fullness, you better go and be with the church. You can find the fullness of Christ in his body, not in your four walls. And that is very countercultural. And that is very much what I didn't expect when I first read that. I was like, wow, this is really crazy. This is not what I would intentionally, like intuitionally do. And Paul is pointing out, really, that this fullness of Christ's presence, you cannot experience that without the community. You cannot experience that alone. And isn't it interesting? It's a human phenomenon. Isn't it interesting when you read about atheist communities, they also have something like a church service. They gather, of course not on Sunday because that would be too much like a church, but they gather during the week, they have scripture reading, they have music, and you, you know, this community is important. They have a spiritual family. So when you look to all the cultures and all the different places in the world, there is always kind of a spiritual family where people gather and share their walk of life. And it's interesting when you look at your own biography, when you look back and ask yourself, how did I change? When you look, at, when you look back and periods of their life, and you say, wow, this is, a, this is where I took a quantum leap. This is where I took a step forward. This is where, you know, I have, like, really developed and matured. And when you think how that came to pass, you'll realize this was really only happening through other people. It was happening through other human beings who invested in you. It might be, first and foremost, your parents. It might be teachers who, who went well and beyond to pour into you. It might be mentors. It might be, it might be pastors. It might be spiritual leaders. It might be friends. What Jesus is talking about here is basically the claim that you cannot do life alone. And to the degree that you have a spiritual family that walks with you where you are known and that you know, to that degree you'll experience change. To that degree you'll experience his fullness that he has for us. And as soon as I'm finished talking about this, you'll think about this, this is, some, this is problematic. <laughs> this is not as easy as it might sound in the first place. Because people are different. 
not just your immediate family is different, not just in your immediate family are people that are difficult to get along with, that you have trouble relating with. When you come to a place like this, there's plenty of people that might be different from you. Plenty of people that might have different perspectives on life. Plenty of people that might have different views on how to do life. They might answer questions differently. And you might find yourself having very opposed opinions on different topics, could be political views too. And what I find really encouraging is when I look at Jesus' disciples, I see the same phenomenon. Let me point out two things. There was Matthew, Levi, who was a tax collector. He was Jewish, but he was working for the Roman Empire. So he compromised. He was probably what we would say left-leaning. He was for taxes. He was for big government. And then you had Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot was, the Zealots were very nationalistic. They were like, they were like, man, we got to get these Romans out of our territory. We got to kick these out. Jesus, when is the army coming? You know, when, when is this happening? Can we see that? He was for like, make Israel great again. <laughs> and these guys are together and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You got to get along. You got to love one another, and your spiritual family has to be more important than your personal opinions. And that is challenging. It's not that easy and not that straightforward. And if we dig a little bit deeper, I think it's again, the, the problem is a little bit our, our culture. And there was a problem in their culture too. So Richard Plass has, um, has nailed it pretty much in his book where he says, we live in an age in which it is very difficult to share the life of Jesus Christ, to identify with him and to participate in him, to understand it in heart and mind because we are so influenced by the radical Western culture of autonomy and individualism that it makes it impossible for us to identify with anything or anyone other than ourselves. And that is really the problem. Jesus is introducing to us an identity of radical community and discipleship. And the essence of that is basically that we have to fully identify with our spiritual family, the church. And maybe we don't experience this spiritual family like we should anymore, like Jesus and his disciples experienced it. And, and maybe we don't experience that as, as a consequence. Maybe we don't experience church like the people did back then. And maybe as another consequence, we don't experience Jesus' fullness that Paul is talking about in Ephesians like we should. And maybe you're looking at your life and for some time you've been a little bit sad about there's no growth. Maybe you're missing the discipleship aspect where you're like taking steps forward. Maybe you're kind of unhappy with the witness that you'd love to be to non-Christian people and you just you don't seem to have that. Or you're looking at yourself and say, well, basically, I'm so much looking like my culture who's not believing. Where's the countercultural element? That's all because of community. And when we take a look at the early Christian church, it is interesting to notice that these early Christian believers were very different from their surrounding culture in the Roman Empire. They were very different from the society they lived in. And three things marked them significantly. The first was they cared for the poor, the marginalized, the downtrodden, and the isolated. 
And they worked towards racial unity in strong ways. And, and that made them agents of justice. They were forgiving and reconciling community, which is a second really interesting thing that took them apart because they were heavily persecuted. All kinds of really brutal things was done to them. They were burned alive on, on, on pieces of wood. They were pierced, tormented. Um, all the cruel things that you cannot imagine were done to them. But they still rejected to hold a grudge, to hold bitterness. They were like, no, 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 we got to forgive. We got to reconcile because that's what Jesus did. And so they were agents of peace in their society. And lastly, in the area of sexuality, family and marriage, they were very different from their environment, from, the, from their surrounding culture. And so they were agents of love. And this, all three things, they were only possible in community. They couldn't have done this by their own, by individuals. And it's interesting, so much so, they were different that um, Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher, he wrote that it is so outrageous that all the ideals of the Roman Empire are embodied best by these weird people called Christians. Why is that? And Augustine wrote his book on the city of God, basically saying the city of man will go down because of these things. And he was right. Because the Roman Empire in three, four centuries collapsed and Christianity emerged as a world religion. Jesus is bringing us this brief passage and it's a kind of a warning that if we're not careful, we might not be in community, but in anonymity. That if we're not careful, we're not known and we're not, we, we don't know anybody. And it's interesting, at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything locked down, I was talking to my friends in Germany and they were like, oh, is that not amazing? We can have our church service in, in the bedroom. We don't even have to get out of bed. We just turn on the TV and can have it like self-service. I don't have to go to church. This is amazing, isn't it? And then when the churches opened up again, people didn't come back because it was so convenient. But you know, that's not the community that Jesus is talking about. You cannot have community on a remote screen. Meanwhile, in Turkey, we had to do the, the whole Zoom thing, the YouTube thing. We had, to do the, we had to do that because we couldn't meet. Everything was locked down. And we realized very briefly, after a couple of months, this is not working well for us. People were, like, not liking it. You know, Turks love to hug. They love to kiss. They love to grab you, you know. <laughs> it's like, and so we got, man, we got to find a way to meet. And so we then discovered, and we had these weekend lockdowns that were like from Friday midnight to Monday 5 a.m. You couldn't leave your house. And so we're like, okay, let's think, let's think. Oh, the mosques have opened on Friday. <laughs> Interesting. Let's meet on Friday. And so for one and a half years, we met on Friday because otherwise the church would not have survived. So how can we apply this? How can we live the communion that is given to us in Acts 2, which when we read it is, oh, this is so amazing. This is so great, Acts 2. You know what is written in Acts 2? It says they met every day in the temple. <laughs> every day, and they met in the homes. It's like, scratch your head, when did they do that? Did they not work? <laughs> Didn't they have any like responsibilities? Oh, they had, but they were making time. So the first application is like, we have to make time for deep and honest and authentic community. 
to experience this fullness that Paul is writing about, to experience the spiritual family that Jesus is talking about. Second, we have to leave our comfort zone and spend time with people who are very different from us. And third, we have to avoid the Christian bubble because we're called to be witnesses. We're called to bless the neighborhood and the city. And we have to find ways to live out a countercultural way of selfless love. And you know, when you look at the passage, it's really interesting. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. You know, he met with his disciples, not in a classroom. He didn't say, okay, show up on Monday, 2 to 4, and then I'll teach you. And 4 p.m. comes and said, I'm done. I need my own time now, my, my private time. <laughs> I don't want to see you now. No. What did he say? He said, come and follow me. The disciples followed Jesus 24-7. So much so that Jesus couldn't even like, get time alone with his father. He had like, to sneak out. You know, he had to like, run from his disciples to like, spend time like, early morning before sunrise or late night. And they were still chasing after him. You would say, oh, that's like very unhealthy. There's no boundaries there. Yeah, exactly. That's what Jesus did. There were no boundaries for community. It's crazy. And then he's always in, around people that are very different from him. He's always around people having lunch, having dinner with the prostitutes, with the tax collectors, with the, with the Pharisees, and it's, it's really challenging for him. And third, and you see that in the text too, because at the beginning he says he was still speaking to the people. With which people? It was the people that were very different from him. But he was speaking to people who did not believe like he did. So he's always outside witnessing, evangelizing, sharing, teaching, blessing, healing. That's an image of community. That's what we're called to do. Back to the onion. We started with the immediate family. We looked at the spiritual family. And now the question is, how can we do that? Maybe you feel a little uncomfortable when we talk about Acts 2 and they were meeting every day. So... Maybe tomorrow you'll have to like come to church every day <laughs> or meet in the homes every day. And it's just like, how, how should I do that? Or maybe you have like experienced your immediate family as not so healthy and you have scars and you're just like, I, I can't find the strength to open up and make myself vulnerable again. I can't risk being hurt again if I'm sharing the true me, if I'm authentic. So where do we get the power to do that? We have to look at the perfect family. Family as the heart of discipleship through radical community only makes sense if we look at the key of this whole passage. And the key of this whole passage is that Jesus is tying everything that he's saying to his heavenly father. He's saying in verse 50, whoever does the will of my father in heaven. So that's the foundation. So everything that we talked about only makes sense when we look of the Christian understanding of God as a trinity. When we look at the complete harmony and authenticity and love and other-orientedness that you can find in, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it makes only sense when we understand that in the trinity, God, there's one, but there's also three. And nobody has made sense out of that until today doesn't make any sense but it makes a lot of sense actually at the same time so in the western church we usually use a triangle to symbolize the trinity emphasizing the three different persons right in the eastern church it's interesting there's three circles and they overlap 
but they're not perfectly overlapping. So the Eastern Church is emphasizing more the oneness, and the Western Church is emphasizing the, the threeness, and both is important, and we've got to get this together, and we've got to understand that this is where we get the strength and the power to get out of our selfishness, our self-absorbedness, and our pride of always being right and having it all together. Because when you look at the cross, what you see is that God sacrificed his perfect family for us to get us in, to include us in this perfect family, to adopt us into this perfect family. When you look at the cross, you realize that what is totally impossible for us, everything that I've told you is totally impossible for you to practice. It is impossible for us to, be not, to not be selfish. Because at the end of the day, it's always me, mine, myself, what I want. And only if we see the selfless love and the other-oriented of the Trinity, we get the power to do that. And isn't it interesting when you look at Jesus and he's walking around doing all these crazy stuff and he's saying, I'm not doing my will, actually. If you read John 5, John 6, he's always saying, I am not doing my will. I'm doing the will of my Father in heaven. What he tells me I'm doing and what he tells me not to do, I'm not doing. So there is a submission in the Trinity. Even though Christ was fully God, he submitted himself. There's an other-orientedness, a selflessness, an unconditional love. And when, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and he says, you know what? It's good for you that I leave because I will send you the, the Holy Spirit. And he, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is reminding us, explaining to us, enlightening us with what Jesus taught, which we couldn't understand without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not doing any crazy stuff. It's, the Holy Spirit is submitting to Christ. And and magnifies him and lifts him up and glorifies him. So you, you see in the Trinity how all the persons are just other-oriented. They're not about themselves. And if you think of it, the temptation of Christ in the desert, and I've always thought, what is, why is the devil doing all these weird stuff? What is the essence of, the trend of, this, of, of this desert temptation of Jesus? You know, I believe that the essence is that Jesus never did a miracle for selfish reasons. Everything he did was always to help other people. And here you have the devil tempting Jesus, hey, speak to these stones, turn them to bread. And Jesus says, no, that's not who I am. That's not how God has created the world. That's not how and who God is. Because God is other-oriented. He's always directed towards somebody else. And so when we look at the cross... We have to understand that Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything that he had, which was his perfect family. And that was probably the worst thing that could happen to him. It, it, was, not, it was not the physical pain. It was not the torture. It was not the being beaten up, the being ridiculed, the being spit at, being like pierced and like put a crown of nails on his head bleeding all over his face. That's not, that's not the suffering that Jesus was ha heading to. Because there was a lot of people that were crucified. The essence of Christ's suffering is that he's basically abandoned. He's not only abandoned from his immediate family. He's not, even, he's not only abandoned by his spiritual family. He's also abandoned by his heavenly family. All the disciples left him. 
And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's, it's the only place where he's not talking to his heavenly father. You sense there's a lack of intimacy in his prayer. There's, there's a distance. There's a brokenness that has crept in into the heavenly family. And Christ is enduring this. And why is he doing that? To bring us in. To adopt us into this perfect family. To give us what we otherwise could never achieve, never experience, which is the deep community that he wants us to have. The fullness of him. Church is Christ's body where his fullness dwells. And for Christ to die on the cross, for the Trinity to be broken was the only way for us to experience that. The perfect family of God is the foundation to experience the fullness in our spiritual family, which is the church, by transcending our immediate family. And when we look at that and we try to understand not only here, but here, it gives us the courage to open up. It gives us the courage to be true to yourself, true to ourselves, to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to drop the masks, to live selflessly in love and live other-orientedly that we see in the Trinity and to serve and invest in others. We have to understand how unnatural our immediate family shaped us. We have to try to remove the cultural blinders that hinder us to experience what Christ wants us to experience. We have to be adamant to not settle for anything else and anything less than this deep community that Christ wants us to experience. And lastly, we got to get out of our comfort zone to love and serve and invest in people who are very different than us. And God's community, the one that he's willing to give us, is giving us the power to do that. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this passage. Um, I thank you for giving us a vision of community that is, humanly speaking, unattainable, but speaking from your perspective, it's the biggest blessing that you could give us. And you've voluntarily endured the pains on the cross, the brokenness that we experience. And you've taken all the sins of the world on your back with the result that the Holy Father has turned away from you so that we could be accepted and we could be adopted and we could inherit your holiness. Help us live that out to the blessing of the city. Amen.